One Week Season. Inner Circle fam, welcome to the week 12 Thanksgiving edition of the Tuesday Inner Circle podcast. Welcome new members. I would imagine we have some new members who joined on the Black Friday discounted rest of season price. So welcome aboard. Excited to have you here. For the rest of you, welcome back. Real quickly before we get started, for any of you who are new, obviously, typically we do these Tuesday segments live. We usually have, I would say, about 50 to 80 people who show up live on Tuesdays, and then we have about 1,000 people in Inner Circle, so everybody else listens to it after the fact. This week, we are, just because of schedules and whatnot with Thanksgiving, we are doing this pre-recorded. So next week, you will be able to join live if you'd like, or you can join everybody else listening to it after the fact. The other thing I want to note is these Tuesday segments. So basically, the idea behind Inner Circle was rather than providing one-on-one coaching, which is prohibitively expensive for most DFS players, typically 100 to 125 bucks an hour, what we wanted to do was set up a weekly coaching structure and set it up the same way that we would set up coaching if we were doing one-on-one coaching with you, which is basically we would do a segment earlier in the week where we would talk more broadly about DFS strategy and theory, and then do a segment later in the week, Friday or Saturday, where we would talk specifically about roster construction through the lens of strategy for that week's slate. So the Tuesday session, we typically do broader strategy focused stuff. And what's cool about it is we're able to kind of be flexible in the ways that we approach it. So sometimes it's about the week behind us. Sometimes it's about the week ahead. Sometimes it's about things that have nothing to do with the weeks around us. Sometimes it's focused on my rosters. Sometimes it's focused on other people's rosters. And so just kind of get an opportunity to drill down on a lot of different things that are important foundational elements for DFS. That is background for any of you who are new, but it's also background for what I want to talk about first here, which is getting great at something. I'll say it like this. So all the time I I talk about how DFS is a creative endeavor and how the more the more time we're spending in the logical part of our brain and trying to come up with first place rosters, the less likely we are to come up with first place rosters. It's interesting because as with anything, there are logical foundations that you have to know. It's almost like this. You can't fly until you understand the laws of gravity and physics. But once you understand them, and you understand what keeps things on the ground and what keeps things from staying in motion, you can kind of understand how to work with those laws in order to fly. So getting really good at something is often about just knowing. It's not about drilling down to the logical elements. I guess we just used the flight example. A more pertinent example, a more accessible example. And and one of my favorites is I think about somebody like Steph Curry, whose practice habits are well known. And 
I remember a game where it was just a mid-season game. And I don't, I'm not a big basketball person, but it was the Warriors against the Thunder. And it was back when the Thunder were really good. And I was living in Oklahoma at the time. And so all of my friends were big Thunder fans. And watching, I watched like the end of that game and it was close down the wire. And some of you might even remember this game. Steph Curry basically took a game-winning shot from like 15 feet, maybe it was more like 10 feet, but it was like way beyond the three-point line with several seconds left on the clock. It wasn't like he was rushed and this was the shot he was able to get up. This was the shot that he chose to take because the defender was playing off of him and he was that confident that he could hit that shot because he had practiced that shot so relentlessly that it's muscle memory at that point. And so a player like Steph Curry, he's not taking that shot and thinking about how he's positioning his elbow and what his shooting motion is and exactly how much power he has to put behind the ball. He is just clicking over to muscle memory. And that's an illogical shot to take, but because of what he knew in the moment, basically, that he could make that shot and that that was going to be his highest probability opportunity for getting this game winner. He went in, in fact, I believe it was a two-point game, right? So they could have, he shot it with like three or four seconds left on the clock. They could have kicked the ball inside and tried to get two points and send it to overtime. Instead, he takes this game winner from well beyond the three-point line. And again, it's a thing of, this is what I know. I know I can make this shot. You take the shot and you shoot it. And so, in order to get to that point where you know things, you often have to go through a large number of logical steps first. You have to put in the all the foundational layers. So I think about writing. Most of you know I'm so I'm 36 years old now. I'm at an age where I have to think about how old I am. Uh, I'm 36 years old. I've been writing since I was 15 years old. And, and you guys know my personality, right? I'm I'm pretty dedicated to the things that I'm dedicated to and work really hard to become good at them. And so writing is something that I've spent a lot of time focusing on for over 20 years now. And for probably the first 10 to 12 years, a lot of my writing time and writing learning was understanding all of the technical and logical aspects of writing. And then I got to a point where the technical aspects of writing were second nature to me. And I was then able to find what it is that's the difference between good technical writing and good writing. And I've said it like this. I, I basically, I can sense the shape, liquidity, and temperature of, of words. In fact, there are... I didn't even know this until years after I realized that I could kind of sense the flow of words and how they work together. But there are what's called stop consonants and liquid consonants. And there's a very different flow that's created based on how you're positioning consonants, based on how you're putting words together, based on if you've listened to especially like 90s rap music, people like Eminem or Nas or even modern rap like Kendrick Lamar and the way that they piece certain words together and word sounds and cadences and all of that. There's a lot in that as well as far as words that fit together well and flow together well. And that's beyond the technical aspects of that. My wife and younger sister are both photographers, both very good photographers, and they both spent a lot of time getting good from the technical side of things. But when they talk about photography, they talk about the tone and the warmth and stuff like that of a photo in a way that they both understand, but I wouldn't be able to look at a photo and define or understand. So I say all that to say, what we talk about in these segments a lot of it is kind of the technical aspects of DFS. And that's absolutely vital to have and understand. 
But the goal is ultimately to get to a point where the the technical aspects are second nature to you. And that's not what you're having to think about. So 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when I was writing, I might've been thinking about, okay, how do I want to use punctuation in this sentence? Where do commas go? Where do I like for commas to go in order to set the flow of a sentence? How long do I want sentences to be? How do I piece these things together? How do I piece this thought together? How long are these paragraphs? Now, I don't think about those things. I've learned those things and it allows me to do those things by muscle memory and be able to pay attention to the other things that kind of are the difference again between technically good writing and good writing. And so what we want to get you to a place of is being able to move beyond just technically good DFS play to truly good DFS play. And so all of the all of the underlying technical elements that we talk about are important to have as a foundation. But Ultimately, you want to arrive at that point as a DFS player where that's not what you're having to think about when you're building. And instead, you can then think about the creative side of things and kind of sense what is going to differentiate your rosters from the field while giving you that clearest possible path to first place. As we often talk about, DFS is not about maximizing points. It's about maximizing paths to first place. And the more you're in that logical side where you're kind of thinking, okay, well, okay, I can do this and this will outmaneuver this. And then the less likely you are to be able to really piece something together that just flows together and gives you that upside over everybody else. So I think about the, I kind of made a few notes here, right? Like over the years, I remember at one live final, in maybe it was 2017, an MLB live final in Nashville. And after the, you know, live final party and after party and all that, uh, Jeff El Jefe and Draft Cheat and I went to some parking garage and went up to like the top floor of this parking garage and for two or three hours just chatted DFS theory. I remember speaking at a DFS boot camp that Al Mizzle had done in Boston and that he'd put on in Boston and on the bus ride from the, the event to Fenway Park, which was like an hour because of traffic. Smizzle and I just sat there for an hour and just talked about DFS. Uh, I remember being in Nashville, which is where Roto Grinders is based, and going to a birthday party with Cal Spears of one of his friends. And Cal was sitting there explaining DFS to somebody else. And I'm just sitting there absorbing what he's saying. In fact, I've talked about that conversation before where Cal, Cal basically said, what he loves about DFS is that every week it's a new puzzle to solve. And he was kind of explaining it to this person that way. And it caused something to click in my brain where I was able to say, oh yeah, that's an interesting way to look at this and kind of look at things through that lens. And so these conversations over the years have helped me to continually build up my foundation and understanding of DFS theory, DFS play, conversations with Blender on Discord, uh, the podcast I did with Blender before the season kicked off, podcasts I've done with Levitan, with CSU Ram, with Cheese is Good, with Grant Niefer and Bobby Firestone, uh, text message conversations with Cubs fan, or, or this year, Mike Johnson and I have texted quite a bit, and just always picking up new things. And I want to also make it clear, right? Like, I'm talking about by and large, names in this industry that you might know from other sites or from being in this industry for a long time. Also recognize that Zandemir and Sonic knew each other before either of them were writing for OWS, and they knew each other through Al Smizzle's Discord server. So they had noticed each other there. They had had conversations in the Discord server there, had started DMing one another, and had become friends, DFS friends, through that Discord server and basically helped each other grow as DFS players. 
In fact, this is how Zandamir and I first got to know one another before he wrote for the site was he reached out to me saying, oh, you live in Portland. There aren't that many DFS players in Portland. I found you want to get together and watch games sometime. And I think that's an important thing to point out as well, right? It doesn't have to be, quote, known DFS players. Just find people who, you know, if you're on the OWS Discord, which most of you who are in Inner Circle are on there rather frequently, find people whose thoughts and mindsets kind of vibe with your thoughts and mindsets. And maybe there's kind of that overlap where you guys are playing the same types of contests and looking at things similarly, but you're also spotting things that they're saying that are opening your eyes to see things differently and kind of keep building that foundation from what different people are saying, what different people are talking about. And then of course, keep building that foundation through these Tuesday podcasts, right? Because the Saturday podcasts are unbelievably valuable and they are immediately valuable. So it's, it can be easier to pay deeper attention to those Saturday podcasts because it's Saturday. You've got a slate of games on Sunday and Zandamir and Hilo are walking very specifically through the strategy for that week's slate or the strategy elements for that week's slate. So while they're talking a lot of theory, DFS theory and, and, and foundations of DFS play, it's very specifically through the lens of that week's slate. So it's easier to kind of tune out on this Tuesday one and not recognize that so much of what we're talking about in these Tuesday sessions also goes into just that foundation that gets you to the point where you don't have to think about like the example I used uh, a few minutes ago. You don't have to think about the punctuation while writing. You don't have to think about the the foundational DFS theory while building that is already drilled into you. And what you're then able to do is build rosters around the slate. So this week, we are going to talk very specifically about small slate strategy. And we're going to do so through the lens of the Thanksgiving slate. Now, obviously, there's a lot of other content that is geared toward this Thanksgiving slate this week. So we're not going to be getting into the specifics of like which players I like and how I would apply these specific strategy elements so much as understanding what's different about small slates, how we can use them and and talking about all of that through the lens of this week's small slate. What I love about small slates is all this strategy stuff that we talk about. It's so much easier to apply it on a smaller slate. If you have been in Inner Circle, you've heard me talking about flash drafts, uh, which are the in-game drafts on DraftKings. And when I talk about flash drafts, what I often talk about is the greatest value in them is that it gives you rapid-fire practice at all of these DFS elements. So I've talked about last year on Thanksgiving weekend or Thanksgiving day, uh, I won the game changer on a two game slate because the night game that Thanksgiving, if you recall, 2020 Thanksgiving was canceled due to COVID. So it was just a two game slate. And I had been playing flash drafts throughout the season. And all I really did was I said, okay, some of these strategies that I'm using in flash drafts and seeing them work in real time, let me just apply those same strategies to this small slate. Not building for how I get the most points, but building for how I maximize my path to first place. And I want to say this, as you go into this Thursday slate or any small slate, really, but as as you go into this Thursday slate specifically, don't think about the money. 
in, I don't remember if it was like week three, four, five, somewhere earlier in the season, I gave you guys a quote homework assignment where I said, I wanted to recommend to you this week to build five rosters uh, for like low dollar tournaments, like way, way, way below whatever price points you typically play at and not worry about the outcome because you're not worried about losing that money, but also still put the same amount of time and effort and energy and focus into these rosters that you would be putting into your normal rosters. Basically, it's to say, practice building fearlessly while still building intentionally and with deep thought and focus. And the way to to practice that oftentimes is just putting less money at risk. So I'm not saying on this Thursday slate, on this Thanksgiving slate, put less money in play, but don't build thinking about the money. Instead, think of this as an opportunity to put together this puzzle well and differently. So one way to look at it is like this. Let's say that everybody is given a pile of puzzle pieces. And this puzzle can actually be put together different ways. There's no one right way to put this puzzle together. But let's say that there's also a wheel that's going to be spun. And this wheel has all the different options on it of how the puzzle could be put together. And let's say that the most obvious way to put the puzzle together, the wheel is going to land on that option more times than it will land on the less obvious ways to put the puzzle together. So think of it like this. Everybody gets the same puzzle pieces, right? And the wheel, when we spin the wheel, let's say that, let's say that there's only three options. And let's say that on the wheel, there are 10 spots and eight of those 10 spots is a lion. And the lion is the most obvious way to put this puzzle together. So 80% of the time, it's going to land on the lion. But another spot is a zebra and another spot is a giraffe. Well, if over 80% of people are putting together the puzzle as a lion, if 90% of people are putting together the puzzle as a lion, if 95% of people are putting together the puzzle as a lion, you being one of the only people putting together the puzzle as the giraffe, well, sure, it's going to land on the giraffe less often, but when it lands on the lion, you're just splitting the wins with everybody else. When it lands on the giraffe, you're one of the only people who built your puzzle as a giraffe. So it's, again, it's not about what's likeliest to happen. Now we need to understand what's likeliest to happen, but it's about what's going to make us the most money over time. Everybody's getting the same puzzle pieces. There are different ways to put this puzzle together. And there is there are certain ways that it's going to play out that way more often, but Almost all the time, the way that's going to play out most often is also the way that more people are building to a greater degree. They're, they're basically betting on that being a higher certainty outcome than will actually be the case. And more money will be made betting on that second or third way that things will play out. And what you have to grasp in this is that you're going to lose more often if you're building this way. Now, what's interesting is... On larger slates, 
especially larger slates, smaller field tournaments. And we've talked about this for years, what we call bankroll building contests. Tournaments with a thousand or fewer entries or 500 or fewer entries and it's single entry or three entry max. And the payout structure isn't super, super steep so that you can build in such a way, you can basically build in a high certainty way. And the aim in those contests is to understand better than the field how to put rosters together. So if you were in Inner Circle last week, you heard us talk about, and actually, if you just joined this week, you can go back and listen to past podcasts. So I would uh, specifically encourage you to go back and listen to the week 11 Tuesday podcast. But I broke down my roster from the week 10 slate. And one of the things on that roster was the, well, it was Tom Brady, Mike Evans, Chris Godwin. And the thought there was probably about 75% of the time with Antonio Brown out, especially Antonio Brown and Gronk out, about 75% of the time, that three-player pairing is going to go for like 3.75x the combined salary or more. And as we always talk about, players, individual players are priced in such a way that they're going to go for 4x their salary like once every four games, again, with a lot of nuance and a, and a lot of different specifics as far as uh, why certain players are priced differently than others. But generally speaking, players are going to hit 4x their salary like once every four games. So if you can get a block of players where you can get three roster spots right and they're going to hit 4x their combined salary or at least close to 4x their combined salary one out of every two games or three out of every four games or whatever the case might be for that Bucks offense, well, that's just such a high certainty bet. The other high certainty bet that I looped into that roster that I kind of explored in that in last week's podcast was Devontae Adams plus Marquez Valdez-Scantling. And I explored it because it seems to be non-correlated. But as I talked about and dove into, and as you saw in the Angles email this week, if you missed last week's Inner Circle segment, that pairing is more correlated than it would seem to be. And in six of their previous 17 games, they had gone for more than 4x their currently combined salary. Obviously, we saw in week 11, they went out and did that yet again. And then the other main pieces on on that roster of mine from week 10 were Dearness Johnson and Mark Ingram. And it was basically saying... Let me get as much high certainty, as many high certainty bets on individual players and player blocks as possible on this roster because I was playing small field tournaments and I still had a very clear path to 200 plus points, but also my roster was built in such a way that if I missed, I still had a high probability of cashing. And when we're playing a large slate and playing those bankroll building contests, there's a lot that we can do in that way, to basically give ourselves a path to first place and also cash and still make money, even if our roster doesn't come together the way that we're hoping that it comes together. What's interesting is that as we get into these small field contests, it becomes much more what Cubs fan calls rosters that are all the way to the left or all the way to the right. Rosters that are either you know, bottom 10% or top 10%, bottom 5% or top 5%, bottom 1%, or top 1%. In other words, you're building so differently from everybody else. And it's, it's, I see it like this. And I talked about this, uh, I used this example a few weeks ago. Visually, I kind of see it like when a school of fish clumps up into a tight ball and the predators, whether it's sharks or birds or dolphins or whatever it is, they will often work together. In fact, a lot of times, several different predator groups will work together to separate this group into smaller groups. Because when it's this big clump of fish, it's harder to get in there and get individual fish. 
So I see DFS as kind of the same thing, except that you have to get, instead of having to break up this group, you have to get around this clump, this, this school of fish clump. And you can't go through it. You have to go around it by doing something different from what this school of DFS players is doing. And so if you're in that clump, maybe you're toward the top of that clump or toward the bottom of that clump, but it's going to be so hard to get a first place finish because you're still in that clump. And so you have to find a way to kind of move over that clump, move under that clump, move around that clump. And sometimes you don't quite make it and you get shot back to being behind that clump. And that's when you're, you know, all the way to the left. If you're looking at the DraftKings app, right? And they have your, where you're at in the standings. Well, now you're all the way to the left because you weren't able to pass that clump. But if you are able to pass that clump, now you're all the way to the right and you're competing against a much smaller group for first place. So the smaller the slate, right? This three game slate, the smaller the slate, the more clumped up things are going to be. And the likelier it is that you are going to finish behind the clump by betting on something different and be way behind everybody. So when there's 10, 11, 12, 13 games to choose from, there's so many different things you can do that the clump is a little bit smaller or it's a little bit more spread out. And so you're not necessarily going to finish all the way to the left if you're not finishing all the way to the right. But on these small slates, you basically have to say, look, I am my, my main goal, my main focus, and this is why I talk about the flash drafts being such great practice. On these small slates, my main goal, my main focus, the first thing I'm worrying about is not being in that clump. And if I think that that clump is so highly likely to be the way that things play out that I can't get away from that clump, well, then really it's not even worth playing the slate. You have to do something different. You have to do something to get beyond that clump. Uh, all of Zandamir's showdown courses, all of Zandamir's showdown content is another great way to learn how to move around the clump, to basically be willing to be wrong so that you'll make a lot more money when you are right. So all of that is sort of some broader DFS theory and how it, uh, how it relates specifically to these smaller slates. The next thing I want to talk about before we even get to this week's slate is I want to look at this week 11 slate and some of the big games that came out of week 11. So we always talk about big games, big plays, upside comes from volume, big plays, and touchdowns. So guys who get volume are likelier to have had to have it scores. Guys who can go for big plays are likelier to post had to have it scores. Guys who can score touchdowns are likelier to post had to have it scores. So I have pulled seven huge outputs from this last Sunday, price considered or position considered huge outputs from this last Sunday. And I want to just hit on each of them really quickly. So there was Jonathan Taylor who scored over 56 DraftKings points, 185 yards on the ground and four touchdowns, three 19, one through the air. So five touchdowns total. He had three catches. He had over 30 carries. There's your volume. We know that Jonathan Taylor can hit these huge plays and he had five touchdowns. There are your touchdowns. Austin Eckler scored four touchdowns. He had 50 carry or 50 yards rushing, two touchdowns on the ground, six for 65 and two touchdowns through the air. 
Elijah Moore, price considered an excellent score, over 6x his salary. Elijah Moore, eight catches for 141 yards and a touchdown plus a rush attempt. Uh, 32.6 DraftKings points. Zach Ertz, 28.8 DraftKings points, eight catches for 88 yards and two touchdowns. And then the last three were all in a game together, which is uh, the MVS plus Devontae Adams pairing. It was in the player grid. Uh, We talked about it last week on the podcast, but they combined for 11 catches for 238 yards and three touchdowns, 58.8 combined points. And then in that same game, Justin Jefferson, who was the obvious bring back in that pairing, put up 40.8 two points with eight catches for 169 yards and two touchdowns. Now, here's what's interesting to me on all of this. On a large slate, especially in a large slate when we're playing smaller tournaments, now as you get into the slant or the millie maker, you have to really expand your thinking more and more. But on a large slate, when you're playing in smaller field tournaments, even like 10,000 and fewer entries, 5,000 and fewer entries, what you often want to start with is what's likeliest to happen. And again, as we were talking about with my week 10 roster, optimally build around a pretty high certainty scenario. And then you can, you know, optimally you have all of these technical elements of DFS play, DFS theory, already as your base layer underneath you. So you're not having to overthink about that while you're building. And then when you finish building, you can kind of compare your roster to everything you know about proper DFS theory and say, okay, is there anything I need to change here in order to give myself a path to first place? Or is this roster already built in such a way that I have a clear path to first place? So this last week, we isolated the Packers pairing. It was in the player grid, Packers player block. And again, obviously, Justin Jefferson is the bring back on that one. Uh, we isolated Elijah Moore and Brandon Ayuk, who had uh, like over 25 points in the same price range, as guys who we were basically we were saying like, who are the floating plays that can go for a much higher score than their salary indicates? Uh, here's two of those guys. And what we didn't have highlighted was Jonathan Taylor, Austin Eckler, or Zach Ertz. Well, we often talk about uh, all of the elements that we're looking for, right? Talent, matchup, opportunity, and price. So obviously, Jonathan Taylor and Austin Eckler check the talent box and they check the opportunity box. But matchup and price make them a little bit lower on our list in a week like this last week than they would have been on, for example, a three-game slate. Zach Ertz, it was very easy to stay away from him, right? We know that Kyler Murray's not going to be out there. He's going to be Colt McCoy under center. And sure, DeAndre Hopkins is out, but A.J. Green is back. And so you're basically just saying, hey, look, we just don't know a lot here. So why would we try to go to Ertz in a contest where we're playing against, you know, 500 other rosters or 1,000 other rosters or 1,500 other rosters or whatever it might be? So on these larger slates... Basically, it's like this. A player like Jonathan Taylor is in such a difficult matchup against the Bills, a team that is whatever they came into the week as, number one or number two, top three, and fewest points allowed per game. Or a player like Austin Eckler, for whom really anything over 30 points is an extreme outlier for him. And so ultimately, on these large slates, and we've talked about this a lot as well, we want to identify Every single player who can go for a huge game. 
even if it's going to take an outlier, even if they're in a bad matchup, we want to not be surprised when a player has a huge game. We want to be able to say, well, I've already thought through that player and I've already thought through that player's potential likelihood of a big game and basically deemed that their chances of hitting their big game weren't high enough to be on my roster. But I also saw, yes, this guy can go for 30 plus points, 35 plus points, 40 plus points, whatever it might be. But if there's 10, 11, 12, 13 games, it's harder to get Jonathan Taylor plus Austin Eckler plus Zach Ertz onto a roster together. Elijah Moore was also super low owned. Obviously, we had identified him. MVS was also super low owned. We had identified him. But to get all those like low owned players onto a roster together is difficult to do because you have to take on a lot of lower certainty bets. What I love about small slates is people still pull their large slate thinking over to small slates and avoid the guys who are in a bad matchup without recognizing that random crazy, like Jonathan Taylor put up 56 DraftKings points against one of the top two or three defenses in the NFL. That's an outlier performance. And yet, if you're on a three-game slate, he's going to be lower-owned then he, I mean, obviously it depends on what else is on that slate, but he's going to be lower owned on a slate like that than he should be relative to his upside because people will still be too focused on the matchup. People will still be too focused on what can not happen as opposed to what can happen. And so as we get into these smaller slates, we have a lot more freedom to say, yeah, the, one of the things I've said since I think 2014 or 2015 is a difficult matchup lowers a player's chances of reaching their ceiling, but it still doesn't change what that player's ceiling is. And that Jonathan Taylor game is a perfect example of that. A matchup against one of the top two or three defenses in the NFL obviously lowers his chances of having a monster game, but it doesn't lower what the score from a monster game looks like. Unless I'm very much mistaken, that was the best game of his career to date. And it was against one of the toughest matchups he could have. For that matter, even the Steelers defense is, is certainly no pushover. Is one of the tougher defenses that the Chargers could have a game against. And Austin Eckler goes out and puts up the best or one of the top two or three games of his career, fantasy games of his career. And so recognize that ceiling doesn't actually change in a tough matchup a player is just less likely to hit that ceiling. So we can carry that thinking over to smaller slates and recognize that other people are going to overrate the elements they're looking at in a large slate. Matchup. Price-considered matchup. Price-considered score. We'll get to an interesting player on this Thanksgiving slate uh, in that regard. They will overrate those elements and not recognize that the game changes when we're playing such a small slate. So the first thing we need to know is what is likeliest to happen. So that's what the NFL Edge will be there for. Obviously, uh, NFL Edge interpretations are going to be there for what's likeliest to happen. But then we also need to think outside of that. So DFS interpretations will be there for that. And we're going to talk about some of that as we go through the remainder of this podcast. Uh, but first step is needing to know what's likeliest to happen. But then we need to recognize the difference between 
large slates and small slates. Whereas on large slates, something like that, Tom Brady plus Godwin plus Evans plus Devontae Adams plus MVS plus the two cheap running backs that everybody had. Well, that's just that's not a non-obvious roster. Obviously, the, the by playing Evans and Godwin and Brady together, it was lower combinatorial ownership than if I were playing one of those guys individually. Obviously, playing Devontae and MVS together gave me lower combined ownership than if I were playing one of those guys individually. Obviously, playing the two cheap running backs gave me lower combined ownership, but it wasn't like a, there were no low owned players on that roster. It was put together in a very different way, but it was basically betting on, Hey, let me worry about certainty first. Again, I was playing in contests that were single entry and three entry max and under 500 total entry. So it was like, let me think about certainty first. And then as long as this roster is unique enough and different enough, I don't have to worry about any strategy beyond that. On these small slates, Thinking about certainty first is one of the biggest mistakes our competition will make. Whereas on the large slate, people don't think enough about certainty. So on these small slates, we want to know what's likely is to happen, but then it's absolutely necessary that we think outside of that. So I am going to walk through a few important elements on each of the teams on this slate. And then I'll kind of wrap this up with some final thoughts. So as you build for this Thanksgiving slate, Pay attention to some of the elements that we're going to talk about right here and kind of think about how those relate to your rosters. Because we want to get a sense on any given slate of how the slate as a whole shapes up. And it can be difficult to do that on a 10, 11, 12, 13 game slate. That's one of the reasons why you have an OWS subscription is because it kind of kind of helps you to say, okay, here's the shape of the entire slate. Here's my starting point. Now let's move forward. On a three game slate, though, it's a great opportunity for you to practice saying, okay, what is the shape of this slate? So I'm going to walk through a lot of these elements and that will kind of give you a lot of the pieces you need for understanding how the slate shapes up and how scoring might shape up to give you a path to a first place finish. And again, and ultimately, or optimally, you are kind of taking all of this in and putting it into your foundation. And you should find that you're getting to a point where more and more your foundation is built up to where you're not having to think through these things as you build, but are instead able to kind of build with muscle memory and build really good rosters that give you a great shot at first place, taking all of this foundational stuff that you've been pouring in and then just building good rosters creatively from there. So first thing I want to talk about, Team ceiling. So in tournaments, it's why I said back in, basically before we built the GPP ceiling tool in in tandem with uh, EV Analytics, before that, all projection systems, now, now like a lot of different sites have range of outcomes projection systems. But unless I'm much mistaken, uh, maybe the Blitz already had a range of projections, but I don't think they did. Uh, I think that we were the first ones to do the GPP ceiling tool where you could do percentile projections. And before that, I always said projections are the most pointless thing and they're killing people's DFS play because projections are median projections. Well, we're not concerned with what a player does in their median game. We want to know what a player can do in their outlier game. We want to know what a player can do that can get us to first place. So it's also easy to just assume median outcomes in games. For example, the Bills have a really good defense. The Saints have Trevor Simeon under center. The Maybe it'll be Taysom Hill under center, newly minted Taysom Hill. But uh, whoever's under center, it doesn't make the Saints a super explosive 
offense. The Saints also have a really good defense, and the Bills have kind of disappointed on offense in some of their games over the last month. So it would be easy to paint a picture of that game being kind of a middling scoring game. It would be easy to say, well, the Bears are playing the Lions and they can have a a big game here. Maybe I want to bet on the Bears in this spot. So understanding what a team's ceiling is instead of just the median outcome that can happen in a game helps us to kind of reorient the way that we're looking at things and just make sure that we're seeing all of the angles. So what I did from a team ceiling standpoint was I went ahead and pulled out each team's three highest scoring games this season. We're going to go in order from the early games on this Thanksgiving slate to the late games. So the Bears' highest scoring games of the year, 27 points, 24 points, and 22 points. So no games over 30 points. Their third best game was only 22 points scored. Lions' best games. Before I go through the Lions' best games, we talk about this from time to time, but just to emphasize this, getting an understanding of where the public's perception of a team or a player comes from is very important. So as we've talked about, when a player has a huge game on a on primetime, especially Sunday night or Monday night football, people have a different perception of that player than if that player has a huge game a huge low-owned game on in the 1 p.m. Eastern time slot. And that's kind of why like, we made so much money off of Josh Allen down the stretch run of his rookie year in 2018 because nobody was watching the Bills games. And Josh Allen had been out with injury, and when he came back, he was a totally different player. The offense was totally different. And it was easy to look at it and say, oh, well, this is fluky. Everyone was making fun of Josh Allen. The perception around him, the narrative around him was this guy who had come from Wyoming, wasn't ready to play in the NFL, had no accuracy. And through the first seven or eight games of that season, whatever it was, that was, the, you know, he played to that narrative. And then he missed a few games and he came back, I think it was week 11, maybe it was week 12, and put up a huge game in his in his first game. I think it was against the Jaguars. And Jaguars had a good defense back then and everyone just kind of deemed it to be fluky. And the next game he came out and had another big game. And I went back and watched those two games. And from that point forward, it just relentlessly hammering it on the site. Like, just play Josh Allen and two of his super cheap pass catchers. They're all, Josh Allen was 55, 5,600 or below at that point. All his pass catchers were like 4,200 and below. And it was like, nobody knows that this offense is as exciting as it is because nobody's watching this offense. On the flip side, if, if they had come out and had a huge game on Sunday night football in week 12 of that year, well, then everyone would start thinking about this team a little bit differently. Also, when a player is super highly owned and has a big game, people pay more attention to that player moving forward. So somebody like Daryl Williams on the Chiefs, well, he he's slow, he's not dynamic, he's just a backup running back who knows this Chiefs offense well and can function well within it when he has to step up and function well within it. But because he was owned so highly the first week that he filled in for Clyde Edwards-Hilaire and had a really strong game, the perception around him is very different from the reality. And then one last example here, and the example that's most pertinent to what we're about to talk about, is when a team or a player 
has a huge game at the beginning of the season, everyone just kind of latches onto that and they don't change their perspective throughout the rest of the season. Or we've talked about this with like the Dolphins defense. If a team is really bad early in the season, people don't shift their perspective. I can't tell you how many seasons we've had where the Vikings had communication issues in the secondary on the back end through like the first three or four weeks of the season. And then everybody was picking on the Vikings with mediocre teams after that. And the Vikings defense was playing really well against those teams. So we have to be willing to shift our perception throughout the course of the season and to recognize where our, where the seeds of our perception started growing from. So the lions in week one put up 33 points against the 49ers. And ever since then, the field has continued to kind of view the Lions as a sort of sneaky offense that can occasionally put up a bigger score than expected. So we already went through the Bears' three best games of the year, 27, 24, and 22 points. The Lions' three best games of the year, 33 points. That was week one. Then 19 and 17. That's the highest scoring Lions output this season. 19 and 17 points. That's wild. Okay, now let's go over to the Raiders. We know that the Raiders have been down recently, but what are their highest scoring games? 34, 33, and 33. Now we're about to get into a very different tier of offenses. Cowboys, three highest scoring games are all over 40 points. Bears haven't topped 30. Lions have only topped 20 once. Raiders are light years ahead of those two teams, but haven't topped 34 points. The Cowboys, 44, 43, and 41. The Bills, 45, 43, and 40. And then the Saints, and this is very interesting to me, 38, 36, and 33, basically in line with the Raiders. So it's important to understand what a team is capable of doing. And I, I want to linger on the Bears really quickly before we move on to the next element. The Bears, it's easy to say, well, the offense would probably look better with Andy Dalton under center. And they're playing against the Lions, who we know don't have a great defense. And the Lions have had a couple of good games recently, but against bad quarterback play, right? Like Mason Rudolph is not a good quarterback. Baker Mayfield is not currently a good quarterback with whatever's going on with his physical ailments and whatever else is going on mentally for him. He's not playing well. So Andy Dalton could step in and engineer a good game, but we also have to think about what the coaches are thinking and, and what the underlying philosophy is of the Bears. Matt Nagy needs to win in order to keep his job. He knows that. He also understands that the defense, especially if Tim Boyle is under center for the Lions, the defense for the Bears is going to be a, a big part of them winning games. So once they get out to a lead, if they get out to a lead, they are not going to just keep relentlessly attacking. That's not what the Bears do. If they get out to a lead, they're going to maintain that lead. They're going to try to put together drives and play good defense and not open things up unless the Lions force them to do so. So are the Bears capable of scoring more than 27, 24, 22 points against the Lions? Absolutely. Are the Bears likely to score more than 27, 24, 22 points? Not really. Because in order for the Bears to put up more points, in order for them to score more than three touchdowns, let's say it like that, in order for them to score four touchdowns, which would be a season high, they would almost certainly need one of two things. Either one, the Lions doing well on the other side, which means those rosters should be built telling a story where the Lions are also doing well. or 
and this is an interesting one, or the defense, the Bears defense giving their offense so many short fields that they keep putting in touchdowns. Now, if that happens, you don't necessarily get the yardage plus touchdown upside. But as we saw with these big games from this last weekend, touchdowns are so huge, right? If we take away Jonathan Taylor's five touchdowns, he had 26.4 points. That's a solid game, but nobody's thinking, man, I sure wish I'd had Jonathan Taylor this last week. If we take away Austin Eckler's four touchdowns, he's sitting on 23.5 points. If we take away the three touchdowns that MVS and Devontae combined for, they're combining for about 40 points. If we take away Justin Jefferson's two touchdowns, he's sitting on 28.2 points. In fact, Jefferson's got the best game out of any of these people from, you know, yardage and receptions. And even that's not a game that, that if you miss out on it is going to bury you. So we understand how important it is to get the touchdowns. In fact, with Eckler, he only had 115 total yards in that game, no bonus from his rushing or receiving yards. And so the touchdowns is really what thrust things over the top. So if we have a game where the Bears defense forces a bunch of turnovers and gives their offense a bunch of short fields, well, now we have a type of game where potentially multiple Bears players could be had to have it players on this small slate and the Bears defense special teams would actually be correlated to those players. That would be like, a let's say Allen Robinson's out. That would be like a Darnell Mooney plus David Montgomery plus Bears defense, which is also a unique way to build that. Or if all of the touchdowns just concentrate on one player, it's the type of spot where, I'll say it like this, it's hard for David Montgomery to have a three touchdown game when the Bears themselves rarely score three touchdowns. So in order for Montgomery to have a three touchdown game, typically he would need to score every touchdown that the Bears score and he would need the Bears to have one of their best games of the season. But if the Bears get four touchdowns, it's easier for Montgomery to have a two or three touchdown game. So another way to play that would be like Montgomery plus the Bears defense. Now that's not going to be, neither, neither of those are going to be super low-owned plays, but by combining the two, you lower the ownership a little bit because they work well together. If one is succeeding, the other is probably succeeding and not, not everyone is going to be playing those two plays together. And this obviously goes, I mean, it goes over to showdown play, but this goes back to something we talk about a lot, but that's, uh, again, more difficult to apply in a 10, 11, 12 game slate. And that is what story you're telling around a game. So on showdowns, you get a ton of practice with telling a story around a game. And that's where if you can learn to see an individual game the way Xandamir sees individual games, you can gain so much value moving that same type of thinking over to the main slate because then you can just kind of take it one game at a time. Same thing on these three-game slates. It's that much easier on a three-game slate to say, okay, we only have three teams to deal with. How do I look at each game and the story of each game and what I'm telling on my roster about the story of each game? game. So again, understanding, hey, what are the Bears trying to do and what would it mean for two players from their offense to have scores that could win me a tournament this week? Or, you know, you'd have to say, look, maybe the Bills Saints game is like a 19 to 16 game. That's in the range of outcomes for Bill Saints. Bill Saints is a very interesting game because it could be 41 to 38. It could be 24 to 21. It could be 19 to 16. There are a lot of ways that, that game could play out. Honestly, 
Cowboys at Raiders. Cowboys at Raiders has the highest probability of shooting out. But we've seen it multiple times with Cowboys games this year, the the Cowboys-Chargers game, the Cowboys-Chiefs game, and we've actually seen it with several Raiders games this year where it looks like it's going to be an obvious shootout and the game plays out differently. So you could bet on a scenario where the Bears score 24 points, and that's the best output of any offense on the slate. But again, understanding what story you're telling and how that relates to the rest of the slate and how you want to piece that together with the rest of the slate is extremely important on any slate. And these three-game slates give you great opportunities to practice this and and put this into action in such a way that can be profitable. Uh, you know, so that if we played out this exact slate a hundred times, you would make way more money than the people who are just putting players on the rosters because they like those players, or than the people who are just building in that same school of fish with everybody else. The next thing I want to look at here is concentration. So a team that scores thirty-four points and spreads the ball out to eight or nine different guys is obviously going to be less valuable than, the, than a team that scores 24 points but only gives the ball to two or three players. So we'll obviously be digging into this in the NFL edge as well, but just really quickly to go through the concentration of each team so you have a sense of how each team operates and how that relates to this slate as a whole. The Bears. It's basically if Allen Robinson is out it's basically the backfield and Darnell Mooney and Cole Komet. Now, Marquise Goodwin is going to be running routes. They could be mixing in some other guys. But as far as what the Bears are game planning for, you do have a very concentrated offense. That's a good thing. If Allen Robinson plays, I would also keep in mind that he's a player that most people will shy away from. On these three-game slates, what we're often looking for is who can put up a huge score that people are not on. Who can put up a a huge score that people are not on? Because in a three-game slate, it wouldn't be that unusual for only four or five players to score 20-plus DraftKings points. Now, things could play out differently to where there's, you know, eight eight guys who put up 20-plus DraftKings points. It all depends on how these games play out. But basically, I say that to say finding a 20-point score is immensely valuable, and finding an overlooked player who is capable of scoring 20-plus points is something we should always be looking for. So you're not necessarily saying, oh, I think Allen Robinson's going to have a good game. All you're saying is, if everybody else is building a lion, I'm going to build a giraffe here. And I want to note, you don't have to do that in every spot on your roster. You just need to pull a couple levers that everybody else is not pulling. So Allen Robinson, if he plays, is an interesting one to keep in mind because that's one of the players that can score 20 plus points and people won't be thinking of. But the Bears, if Allen Robinson's out, constant, very concentrated. Uh, David Montgomery is going to be getting most of the backfield work. Darnell Mooney and Cole Komet are going to be the primary targets. The Lions are also heavily concentrated. Now, we need to be realistic about what a team is actually capable of doing. If Tim Boyle is under center and they're playing the Bears who don't have a scary defense, but they certainly have an above average defense, If we're being realistic, the chances that the Lions having a really strong game are extremely low. So uh, speaking of being realistic, take last year's Thanksgiving slate. It was the Texans with Deshaun Watson against the Lions. Well, people were kind of trying to be sneaky and, and, oh, well, I'll go to a different quarterback and not bet on the 
Texans offense here. But if we're being realistic about the slate, and that was a two-game slate, we had Washington and Dallas, and we had Houston and Detroit. If we were being realistic about that slate, Deshaun, like the chances of Deshaun Watson not doing well were so low. The chances of Will Fuller and DeAndre Hopkins not doing well were so low that that's not the spot where you want to look to differentiate. If you're on a 10, 11, 12 game slate, you could say, yeah, maybe Will Fuller puts up 18 points and DeAndre Hopkins puts up 22 and neither of them were had to have it guys for their price tags. And, you know, here's this other game where I think I can get some 30 point scores. But if we're on a two game slate, a three game slate, again, just taking 20 plus points is so valuable. And if the players rock it up above that, great. So be realistic about what can actually happen. If Tim Boyle's under center, how likely is it that TJ Hawkinson has a big game? Now, flip that around. If Jared Goff is under center, one of the things that I would want to be thinking about on this slate is who from the Lions can put up a 20-plus point game without anybody on them? Khalif Raymond has a 20.6-point game and a 19.6-point game. If only four or five players on the slate end up putting up 20 plus points and he's one of those guys, he becomes extremely valuable. He becomes one of the only levers that you have to pull that's just like, hey, here's somebody that no one's on. I recognize that if I miss, I'm behind the school of fish now because if I miss, I'm missing hard. He's getting three, four, five points. But if I hit, I am now moving to the other side of the school of fish. I'm now ahead of all these clumped together rosters. Uh, The other player I want to highlight from this game is DeAndre Swift. This Lions offense has been bad all season. As we laid out, the Lions have topped 19 points only once all season. And yet DeAndre Swift has scored 17.7 or more DraftKings points in seven out of 10 games. So again, anybody who can score 20 plus points is valuable on a slate like this. And what's going to happen is people are going to, they're going to worry too much about matchup and offense and not roster DeAndre Swift at the level that he probably should be rostered. So again, something to think about as you're going into the slate, who can score 20 plus points? Who can score 24 to 28 points? DeAndre Swift doesn't need Jared Goff to be under center in order to score 20 plus. He doesn't need the Lions to score three touchdowns in order to score 20 plus. He's central enough to the offense and is involved enough in the passing game and has enough explosiveness, right? Like big play upside that he can put up one of the top scores on the slate with the Lions scoring the fewest points out of any team on this slate. So another player to keep in mind here. And then again, if, if, if Boyle is under center, my mind is not going to be saying, hey, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe if you're playing like in the Millie Maker and you're having to beat however many thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of rosters, you could say, hey, nobody's going to be on Khalif Raymond with Boyle under center. But if you're playing basically any other contest, you're not wanting to stretch the bounds of imagination to a breaking point and say, all right, Hawkinson and Khalif Raymond with Boyle under center. But if Goff is under center, you do want to say, hey, where are there opportunities to pull a lever that can move me past the clumped up school of fish that everybody else is in? All right, let's move to the Raiders. The Raiders have all these 30-point games and so few useful fantasy games because they're not concentrated. They spread the ball out. The only places where they are concentrated 
are Josh Jacobs and Darren Waller. Now, Josh Jacobs, the concentration comes in very specific games. And what's really interesting, what's absurdly interesting with Josh Jacobs is how concentrated his production is. Let's take a look at this. Josh Jacobs has 24 touchdowns so far in his career. 17 of those 24 touchdowns have come in multi-touchdown games. That's absurd. 17 of his 24 touchdowns have come in multi-touchdown games. Furthermore, the Raiders are 8-0 in those games. Now, some of those games are one-point wins, three-point wins. So it's not like you have to bet on the Raiders winning in order for Josh Jacobs to have a multi-touchdown game. Two or three of those games could have broken differently, and this stat would look different. So I don't overrate this 8-0 thing. It's just a very interesting element tied into all of these multi-touchdown games. Obviously, that's seven games with two touchdowns, one game with three touchdowns for Josh Jacobs in his career. What's more interesting to me is that the combined scoring in these games has been all over the map. There was a his first multi-touchdown game, the total points in the game was 40. Next one was 45. Next one was 55. Next one was 64. Next one was 72. Next one was 49. And then 61 and 60. So it can be a high-scoring game. It can be a low-scoring game. The, the main thing is it has to be a close game or a game in which the Raiders are playing with a lead. In order for Josh Jacobs to have a clear path to a multi-touchdown game, his usage is set up in such a way that he's going to get more usage and more opportunities for touchdowns in games that are close or that the Raiders are playing from in front. So it's not to say that some outlier occurrence couldn't happen where the Raiders lose 37 to 14 and Josh Jacobs gets two touchdowns, but it's highly unlikely. So putting Jacobs on a roster, we now know that there's a certain type of story we want to be telling. We want to be telling a story in which either the Raiders are demolishing the Cowboys and then Jacobs plus the Raiders defense becomes interesting, or the Raiders are winning in a, or playing a close, low scoring game in which case Jacobs and kind of nobody else from this game would be a way to look at it. Or a close high scoring game in which Jacobs and Waller, and multiple pieces from the Cowboys could be put onto a roster. But again, just understanding the unique stories that would need to be built around putting Jacobs on your roster is extremely valuable. Because then you're not having to predict what you think is going to happen. You're just having to say, hey, there's a few different ways that Jacobs could have this big game. And so I need to make sure that if Jacobs is on my roster, I am consciously building around one of those scenarios so that if one of those scenarios plays out i'm sitting here on this vacuum with my mouth open eating up all the points that come in that scenario playing out uh, again obviously waller is a linchpin of this raiders offense another player that we can be thinking about and then on these small slates we have to have a little bit more willingness to kind of quote just guess on some guys. So Khalif Raymond was an example of just guessing where there's nothing in the numbers where we say, hey, this guy's a good play. 
But instead, we're just saying, look, here's a guy who can go for 20 points that people won't be on. So Brian Edwards is a guy also from this game who we can just guess on. A guy who's capable of, you know, four catches for 83 yards and a touchdown, uh, a type of game like that. And again, you only need to pull one or two of those levers on a roster. And it doesn't even have to be a player like Khalif Raymond or Brian Edwards. It could be just like a super unique way you're stacking a game or building around a game. But there has to be one or two places where you're just doing something really different from the field. Uh, the Cowboys, the perception of Ezekiel Elliott versus the reality. Since the bye, Ezekiel Elliott has 20 touches, 13 touches, 17 touches, and 15 touches. He's 8K on DraftKings and will probably be the highest owned running back, possibly the highest owned player on the slate. Can Zeke have a 26 touch game? Absolutely. Can Zeke have a two or three touchdown game? Absolutely. But let's recognize where we can gain an edge. Let's understand the perception of Zeke versus the reality are two very different stories. Perception of passing volume on the Cowboys. The passing volume for the Cowboys has been very interesting. Uh, 32 or fewer attempts in five games this year. But also a game of 39 attempts, a game of 43, a game of 51, and a game of 58. When it's necessary to pass, the Cowboys will pass. So understand the broad range here. And again, these are things that it's harder when there are 10, 11, 12 games on a slate because you have to think through each individual game and then think about how everything compares and then think about what story you're telling and what's kind of moving you around what everybody else is doing and what's giving you the most upside in building around a different way than what everybody else is doing. But when we get to a three-game slate, we can kind of take all these elements there's fewer puzzle pieces to work with, right? It's almost like you've got a 5,000-piece puzzle and a 500-piece puzzle, or a 1,000-piece puzzle and a 100-piece puzzle. That 100-piece puzzle is the puzzle that you're giving to the 7- or 8-year-old. The 10-piece puzzle is the puzzle you're giving to the 3- or 4-year-old. And so basically, like that's kind of like we're getting a a puzzle with fewer pieces. And that just makes it easier for us to take all of this stuff that we talk about and to put it into play. So you don't have to say, Hey, the Cowboys, you know, aren't going to pass the ball or the Cowboys are going to pass the ball a bunch. You don't have to predict that. You just have to understand that if you're betting heavily on the passing attack, there's a very specific story you're telling. That could be the story where Josh Jacobs is scoring two to three touchdowns and it's a high scoring close game. And the Cowboys are having to pass a bunch and you're taking players from the Cowboys like Cedric Wilson, but also like Noah Brown. Noah Brown, now currently C.D. Lamb is, is uh, being projected in ownership projections because the Cowboys are, are hilariously saying that he has a shot at playing. I, I would be shocked if somebody gets cleared from a concussion four days after their game. We'll see what happens there. But if C.D. Lamb is out, Noah Brown's currently projecting at 0% ownership. He's not going to go much above that on a three-game slate. Well, Noah Brown played 42 snaps last week and ran 33 routes, which is the exact same number of snaps and routes run as Cedric Wilson. So is Cedric Wilson going to be schemed more touches? Yes. Is Michael Gallup going to be schemed the most touches through the air? Yes. But are people going to forget about Noah Brown? Yes. And if we played out this slate a hundred times, would Noah Brown be immensely profitable Yes, he has big play upside. He's the type of guy who doesn't need eight or nine targets in order to have a big game. 
right? That's important to understand. Cedric Wilson actually needs targets to pile up in order to have a big game. Noah Brown can have three catches for 80 yards and a touchdown with nobody on it. Uh, Malik Turner played only eight snaps last week. So we can feel relatively confident that Noah Brown, after 42 snaps and 33 routes run, is going to be the guy on the field if CeeDee Lamb is out. Remember, Blake Jarwin's not playing. So we're going to see a lot of three wide sets. Noah Brown is going to be on the field quite a bit if CeeDee Lamb is out. And then obviously talking about concentrated distribution on this team, what's interesting is it's not a super concentrated target tree, right? Cedric, well, the running back, both running backs are going to get some targets. Cedric Wilson's going to get targets. Michael Gallup's going to get targets. Dalton Schultz is going to get targets. Noah Brown's going to get targets. Malik Turner probably gets a couple targets. They're going to mix and match different things. And so if they're only throwing 32 times, nobody's going to see more than five, six, seven targets. Maybe Gallup gets eight targets and you know, Schultz gets six or seven or something like that. And then everything else gets spread out behind them. But everyone's going to be looking at Gallup's 10 targets from last week and neglecting to pay attention to the fact that Dak Prescott threw the ball 43 times. Well, the Cowboys have five games with 32 or fewer pass attempts. So you want to be building around a very specific scenario. If Gallup ends up being the highest owned wide receiver, which again would not be super surprising, or one of the top two or three highest owned wide receivers, which is almost certain. And everybody's just randomly putting Gallup onto a roster. Well, recognize that this is a guy with a downfield role against a Raiders team that tries to eliminate downfield passing. A Raiders team that has actually been really excellent against wide receivers specifically this year, just built, built on based on the way that they build their defense. And everybody's just blindly putting Gallup on their roster. Well, recognize there's two things you can do, right? Either not play Gallup and tell a very different story around this game and recognize that the story everybody else is telling inadvertently without realizing it, they're all telling a story in which this is a high scoring game. The Cowboys pass the ball a ton. And like, think about what what are the Cowboys going to do? You still have Zeke. You still have Pollard. And if you don't have Amari and you don't have CeeDee Lamb, and you're able to control this game, do you think that the Cowboys are going to come out and try to throw the ball 40 plus times? Do you think they want Gallup to have 10 targets in this game? Probably not, right? They're going to split work between Zeke and Pollard. They're going to, you know, throw some short passes. They're going to take a couple shots downfield, but they're not going to want to have high passing volume. So the other way to play this is you put Gallup on a roster, but you also understand what story is being told by having Gallup on a roster. And then you tell that story yourself while most of your competition is not doing so. So whether that's a game that's high scoring and back and forth where you say, hey, I'm going to put Jacobs and Waller and Gallup and another Cowboys pass catcher on this roster and say, this game goes for 60 plus combined points and all the other, you know, it's not, it's not difficult to say Bears, Lions disappoints. And then, you know, we say, hey, look, Saints and Bills, both really good defenses. Let's say that ends up being a game scored in the in the teens or the twenties, and this game is is by far the top game on the slate. Let me take four four players, two players from each offense plus a quarterback, and now I've got five guys from this game. Just betting on this game being the game. Well, most people who put Gallup on are not going to be thinking through things that deeply. It's just like, oh, Gallup got ten targets or injuries. Gallup's the play. We always want to think through game environments. We always want to think through coaches. We always want to think through how each team is going to try to win their 
game. So all of that gives us this, you know, the discussion of concentra- what's concentrated on the Cowboys. On the Bills, three running backs now with Matt, with Matt Breida getting mixed in, uh, four to five pass catchers, and a broad range of outcomes in this game. So there is more guesswork on the Bills offense, but obviously there's a lot of upside on the Bills offense. So one of the things that you would want to do if betting on the Bills is, again, recognize what story you're telling. Is this a shootout? Or are you trying to, as as Zandamir would say, thread a very thin needle by saying, look, this game's not going to be super high scoring, but I can guess exactly which one individual Bills pass catcher has a big game while everybody else kind of disappoints. You know, which story are you telling by playing Bills pass catchers? Because again, they have basically four wide receivers. Gabriel Davis is always going to be mixed in a little bit, plus Emmanuel Sanders, plus Cole Beasley, uh, plus Stefan Diggs, plus Dalton Schultz now that he's back healthy, plus all three running backs are going to be involved in the pass game to some extent. The Saints are super concentrated. I, I think the Saints are a super interesting offense on this three-game slate. The Saints are super concentrated in the backfield if Alvin Kamara is out. Mark Ingram is going to get all the touches. Now, just because Jonathan Taylor smashed the Bills' defense doesn't mean that Mark Ingram is going to, but... But usage is extremely important. And especially if Ingram ends up being, you know, the third or fourth highest owned running back, something to think about where you just have concentrated touches. And then I I think it's really interesting that nobody ever plays Saints wide receivers on the main slate, because why would you? But because of that, people really don't even know the Saints wide receivers. And I think that that will lead to people not really even considering the Saints wide receivers. Now, obviously, the Bills have a very good pass defense, so we also have to be concerned about that. But especially if you're getting into tournaments with 8,000 entries, 10,000 entries, 20,000 entries, thinking about things like, look, I don't think that the Saints are going to have a big game through the air against the Bills, but nobody else will think that either, and it's going to happen more often than people will think. Well, Deontay Harris has recent target counts of 7845. Traquan Smith has recent target counts of 3478. Marquez Callaway has 5644, but obviously gets some downfield looks with some touchdown upside. And there's no Troutman, which is recent target counts of 676 and 8. So one of these guys is going to get seven or eight targets. Maybe two of these guys get seven or eight targets. Again, going through this again, Deontay Harris across his last four games has two games of seven or eight targets. Traquan Smith across his last four games has two games of seven or eight targets. Troutman has two games of seven or eight targets, plus two games with six targets. Callaway has a game with six targets. So this is a pretty concentrated offense in terms of how people look at them, right? Like people just kind of assume, look, you don't, you can't predict anything on the saints and they're, they're not like explosive from a passing attack standpoint and the touchdowns don't go to these guys and the upside's not super high. So you don't want to play them on an 11, 12 game slate. But again, when everybody carries their thinking over to this three game slate, we can then say, okay, yeah, but one of these guys could easily score 20 points. Callaway, Deontay, Traquan, even Jawan Jennings, one of these guys could easily score 18 to 22 points. And if this, if the Cowboys keep the ball on the ground, 
and split work between Zeke and Pollard. And Zeke scores 20 points and everybody paid 8K for that. And Pollard maybe scores 16, 17, 18 points. And also this is taking away from the pass catchers on the Cowboys. And this ends up being a lower scoring game. And the Bears-Lions game is kind of lower scoring. Well, all of a sudden, just getting this 20-point score from one of these Saints wideouts becomes extremely valuable. So similar to Cleef Raymond, similar to Brian Edwards, there are levers that we can pull here and say, look, let me bet on something that people just aren't betting on. That is the ceiling for the offenses, the concentration for the offenses. And this has gone longer than I expected it to go, but I want to cover one last quick thing. And it's probably the most important thing to think about on these small slates. And that is... Look at ownership projections on Wednesday night or better yet on Thursday morning. Translate the story that's being told by the ownership projections and then tell a different story. We're not trying to predict what's going to happen. The larger the slate, the more games we have to choose from, the more value we can gain from betting on certainty first. As we get to smaller slates, people are going to identify the certainty, not necessarily, you know, player block certainty, which is a different type of certainty, but people are going to identify the certainty. Zeke is a more certain back than Mark Ingram. Not by much, honestly, but the ownership gap is going to be much bigger than the actual certainty. So Zeke might be more certain than this other running back who's lower owned or this other running back who's lower owned. But everybody's going way too all, going to go way too all in on the certainty. So you have to take on some pieces of certainty on your roster because there's no need to pull nine levers and nine roster spots. You don't need to do nine things that are totally different from the field. You're going to have some popular plays on a small slate. But you want to be doing something that's just telling a different story than the field is telling. Not, I'm going to fade this popular player, but instead, I'm going to tell a totally different story around this popular player's game. So last year, it was as simple for me as everyone was betting on the Texans smashing the Lions and the Cowboys smashing the Washington football team. I decided that the Texans smashing the Lions was too high certainty for me to want to try to bet differently in that game. So all I did was I bet that the Washington football team smashed the Cowboys and the Houston Texans smashed the Lions. And it was as simple as that to get a first place finish. There was very little prediction happening on my end. All I was saying is what story is ownership telling? And now let me tell a different story. Let me, and this is why we went through the last hour, let me understand what the different available stories are. That's obviously extremely important because we don't want to just be putting random players onto a roster. We don't want to be saying, okay, I'm going to fade this popular player and hope he has a bad game. Instead, we want to say, what's the story being told if this guy is failing? And again, what's interesting is on a 12-game slate, just because this popular player fails doesn't mean that the alternate story in that game is producing points that you need or points that are worthwhile against the other 11 games. But when we get down to a three-game slate, if this popular player is failing, 
there's probably something else in this game that's going overlooked that is happening because of this player failing and that is valuable because the slate's so small. So think about the story that ownership is telling and tell a different story in at least one spot on your roster. If you look at ownership on Thursday morning and you're like, you know what? Every, every story being told here is basically how I'm seeing this slate playing out. And I can't even bring myself to see a different way of this slate playing out. Which, I mean, that shouldn't be the case on this slate because, again, Bills and Saints has such a broad range of outcomes. Cowboys and Raiders has, you know, not a super broad range of outcomes, but certainly some different ways that it could play out. Uh, and then Bears and Lions has, some, you know, it's pretty clear how the, that game's going to play out with just how far does the range of, of scoring reach on the Bears side and what are the Lions able to do in response. But it's unlikely that you can look at ownership projections Thursday morning and say, man, I can't even see a way that things play out differently than this. But if that's the case, then you just don't play the slate. It's it's literally pointless, especially on a three-game slate, to just jump in and do what the school of fish is doing. There's got to be something that you're doing differently. And optimally, it's betting on one of these games playing out differently than everybody's saying. Because then you don't have to say, oh, I hope that this one random player has a big game. I don't have to hope that the Brian Edwards or Khalif Raymond lever ends up moving me past everybody. because. Uh, I've taken this one game and I'm just telling a totally different story. Everybody else is on these two players. Well, if this game plays differently, it's actually this player on this team and like these two players on this other team. And now I've got, you know, and plus a quarterback, I've got four roster spots covered from just a different story. And, and again, we're not thinking about money. We're thinking about how to put together this puzzle well and differently. So well being okay here's an, a specific way this game could play out that this roster would benefit from. And then differently being, and it's a different way than the field is betting on. And maybe the way that the field is betting on this game playing out is the way that I kind of expected to play out myself, but I'm finding one spot to say, all right, you're all betting the game. You might, you might not even realize it. You, the field, might not even realize that this is what you're betting on, but you're all betting on this game playing out this way. All right, I'm going to bet on this game playing out this way. If you guys are right, great. There's going to be a small slate where you guys are wrong and I collect a lot more money than you guys are collecting by being right. And if you guys are wrong, great. I'm soaking up all of these points as a result. With that, we are going to call an end to this. I think it was probably a little bit longer than it needed to be, but um, a lot of valuable stuff to cover on this slate and kind of prep you for what it looks like to build for first place on these smaller slates, and what is so specifically different about these small slates compared to the large slates. With that, I will see you on the site throughout the week. I will see you at the top of the leaderboard. Well, I'll see you on the Angles Pod on Friday night, and I will see you at the top of the leaderboards on Thanksgiving Day and on Sunday. 